In conversation with me today is none other than, in my book, a real hero, somebody who intimidates me simply by her gracious presence, and that is Victoria Barnett, Dr. Victoria Barnett. I think I'm not presumptuous to call you Vicky because yes, that would be fine. Uh, and you know me as Rob. And uh, Vicky is, I'm going to embarrass her slightly and just say I would call her the premier Bonhoeffer scholar, at least in the English speaking world, probably way beyond that. Uh, if you have read anything about Bonhoeffer, you have come across the name uh, Victoria Barnett. And I'm so delighted to have you in conversation, Vicki. Thank you for taking the time. Well, thank you. And you're, you're very kind. There, there are several very good Bonhoeffer scholars out there, but I'm proud to be among them. Yes, indeed you are. And I've read quite a bit of your work and benefited from it enormously, including in my own doctoral work and my uh, dissertation work. So thanks for the contribution you made uh, to that. I want to go right away to Bonhoeffer's circular letter, to his seminarians, to his charges, the pastors working in the field, uh, out in the, uh, in the, uh, what, 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 the term is failing me, what they call the vicarages the, the, or? The, the underground pastorates. This was yes. at the point at which seminary education became illegal and so they were dispersed among the countryside in different churches. Essentially hiding, right. uh, in a way. I mean, hiding in plain sight, I yeah. guess. Uh, and this letter he generates, will you give us the background to the letter? And we're going to talk about your recent treatment of it in your book on this unique piece of correspondence. So you're talking about after 10 years. It is, yes. Oh, failed to mention after 10 years. OK, yes. well, after 10 years is actually a letter he wrote to several close friends who were in the conspiracy with him in 1942. So this did not go out to the seminarians. I stand corrected. I don't know how I had that No, it's, it's an understandable mistake because he did write circular communications. And, yes. he, and he also wrote wartime communications to his seminarians who were on the front um, around the time that he wrote this. So this is, it all kind of blends together. Um, but after 10 years, he actually wrote to three people. Um, his friend Eberhard Beke, his brother-in-law Hans von Donani, and Colonel Hans Oster, who was one of the leading figures in the German resistance. He wrote it at Christmas 1942. Um, and it basically, so it operates on several levels. Uh, the level at which I treat it in the recent publication of it is that it's... You know, which I'll just break in to say you're out with Fortress Press right. with a new book right. on so, After 10 Years. So Fortress agreed to publish a single edition of After 10 Years. It's not a long essay. It's about 5,000 words. And I wrote a historical introduction kind of giving the context. And as the title would suggest, he's writing it After 10 Years of National Socialism. That's why it's called that. Um, and the subtitle in German is, you know, sort of a, a summing up, an, an accounting. So on the one hand, as members of the conspiracy, they are reflecting on what it is that's driving them into the conspiracy to overthrow the regime. Uh, he's thinking theologically about that. But I think he's also really thinking about what has happened to his compatriots, to his culture, to his church in the 10 years of National Socialism. And if you've, if you've come across an eloquent Bonhoeffer quote, it's probably from this essay. Um, you know, his little section on stupidity, his section mm -hmm. on civil courage, mm -hmm. you know, the famous 
passage, you know, are we still of any use, or the, you know, the view from below. We have for once learned to see the great events of history from below, yes. from the perspective of the suffering, the oppressed, and so forth. Um, that's all out of this, this remarkable essay. Um, and the thing that moves me about it most greatly is that I think he really is reflecting, not just as a German, but personally, you know, what has happened to us after 10 years of National Socialism? How, how, how did we fail? Why did we fail? And Bonhoeffer's kind of doing a deep dive into some of the themes that he also brings out in his book in Ethics. In fact, some of the passages in this essay are, you know, verbatim in Ethics. So this is stuff he's working through. And just um, little asterisks there. If you haven't read Ethics, if you've been intimidated by Ethics, you know, a lot of this podcast is being listened to, not by scholars, but by lay people who have an interest in this man. And if you haven't read Ethics, uh, do, do take it on. You, you know, there'll be moments you'll, you'll be tempted to give up on it. Please don't. Push through it. It's really terribly important. But uh, say on. Okay. Well, I'll also say Fortress Press has a reader's edition of Ethics, so they've taken out all the very uh, long footnotes. So it's just the book Ethics. And so if you want to start, that's a good place to start. Um, but after 10 years, I think also gives us a glimpse of Bonhoeffer at a key moment. It's the end of 1942. He will be arrested four months later. Um, and I think it's really the moment that for him is kind of a turning point at understanding his role in a different way. Um, you know, as I think about Bonhoeffer's own personal journey and his faith journey, you know, it seems to me that he's, he's reached a different depth in this essay. I, it's my favorite piece of writing by Bonhoeffer. I've, I've read it for years and it just, uh, it always resonates. An interesting aside, and I only learned this, learned this last year for the first time, is that apparently he shared it with his family. So his family, at, at Christmas 1942, his father read it to the family. And isn't that interesting to think about? And who would have been there, uh, at, likely at that so Christmas So I gathering? think probably most of his brothers and sisters. Now, I don't know how many were in the room, but the Bonhoeffers mm -hmm. did come together as a family. Um, and certainly, you know, I, a number of members of the family knew about the conspiracy, were involved in it as well. Um, so it's, it's just kind of moving to think about this entire family thinking about Indeed, this. and I will make my confession to you uh, now, and that is that I didn't take a great interest in after 10 years. I, I found a lot of the other material terribly uh, interesting, and, uh, and I did go deeply into ethics, and, but I just didn't treat this incidental piece of correspondence with such uh, seriousness until I read your treatment of it. And then I said, wait a minute, I missed something here. And I've gone back to it. And so let's take a person who's done some reading uh, in Bonhoeffer and, and maybe even uh, some of the uh, more, you know, uh, you know, the deeper works, the, um, you know, the real deep theological stuff. Why, why? go to after 10 years? What would be the benefit? I think it does give an insight into his place in the resistance and how he was reflecting on that. Not just theologically, but I would say as a citizen, and I would say personally. Um, you know, we, depending on how you get to Bonhoeffer, 
Um, I think people do tend to read him theologically. It makes sense. He was a theologian. Sure. Um, but he came out of a family that was very humanistic, that sort of understood and trained their children to think of themselves as citizens. This is also a glimpse, I would say, of Bonhoeffer as a citizen. Um, and, and in terms of his personal reflection, I, I find it's a deeply personal text. Um, so it does give you the, kind of that opening into the deeper Bonhoeffer, I would and say. And more and more people are interested in him personally. Uh, they may have been introduced to him through even a, a piece of drama these yeah, days. Right. I mean, if anyone has seen... Well, there's some biographies out, so... You know, sure, yeah. sure. And uh, we have a number of evangelical listeners. They likely were introduced through Eric Metaxas's uh, biography, Bonhoeffer, uh, Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy which leaves you with a very personal uh, impression of him. And, and this is going to give you something much deeper. Uh, and he is a complex character. I mean, there's nothing simple he or is. simplistic think, about yeah, this Yeah, and I man. think after 10 years brings out two things for me. And I mentioned them in my introduction to that, that essay. Um, one is this is, a, this is a real moment of crisis for the resistance. And it's a moment of crisis for Bonhoeffer. And I think you're seeing both his, you know, his despair on some level. Um, I think this is the moment at which he realizes we may not get out of this. Um, at the same time, there's a real element of hope in it. I mean, it's an incredible mix of kind of faith and, and darkness, if you will. Um, so, so there's that. And I, I also say, I think it, you know, what I tried to do in my introduction was bring out the complexity of his resistance. Uh, we tend to see Bonhoeffer as very heroic, and I argue that there's a complexity there even to the German resistance, and that he's wrestling with that, uh, with the fact that in a way he's thrown his lot with the most complicated bunch of people in Nazi Germany can imagine, namely people who have been career military, career diplomats, they've risen up through the ranks, they've been part of the Nazi machine, now they're turning against it, and you know, what is this theologian doing there? <laughs> Uh, I mean, in, it's indeed. a fascinating thing to think about. How could anyone really, I mean, our natural inclination is to think of it as binary, you know, black, white, of course he's going to resist, he's going to join the conspiracy. I do think that a number of people on all ends of the spectrum, you know, all, part, all points along the spectrum will say, gee, how did he, how did he get there? How did he justify? How did he work this out? And this is at least a hint. It's a hint, and I, I would say, I mean, he gets there kind of by accident. He doesn't want to serve in the German military. He has a brother-in-law who's in the Justice Department who is able to get him into the intelligence. And that's how he ends up working with this group of people. Um, but, and I don't think he completely does try to justify it. I mean, I think yes. one of the things that you see in After 10 Years is he's kind of laying out the complexity, the moral complexity of their own situation. Yes, would you say that that suggests any kind of ambivalence on his part? So all accounts, including accounts from members of the family who survived, was that there was no ambivalence about the necessity to overthrow the regime. Yes. Um, and they say there wasn't ambivalence about the sense that it was going to be necessary to you know, murder leading Nazis yes. to do it. Um, so that, I think, is fairly well established. Mm -hmm. um, I think the ambivalence is maybe simply understanding where they've been. I mean, that's why that 10-year stretch yes. of realizing how many compromises they've made along the way. 
Um, that's, that's what he's speaking to. Mm -hmm. You know, when you mentioned the hope that's also there in this unusual communique, yeah. I, my, I had a flashback to sitting with Hans von Hammerstein, who I'm sure you must know, knew uh, before his passing, uh, was at the time, I believe he was, for when I met him uh, in 2010, the last living person to have spoken to Bonhoeffer. And I asked him point blank, I, and he was very much in possession of his faculties, his mental faculties, obviously, and very elderly man. He may have been 90 at the time, I'm not sure. But I asked him, uh, when you spoke with Bonhoeffer, uh, was, was he hopeful or pessimistic? And he said, oh no, quite hopeful that there would be a rebuilding period both for the country and for the church in Germany. So while so much to plumb here when it comes to just one letter, and thank you, I'm gonna highly, I'm going back and reading it again now. I, I feel a little uh, like my compass has been uh, recalibrated here on the importance of this letter. I'm gonna go back and read your treatment of it. And I hope everybody else, who we're gonna post that, you're gonna see that on our website, so just go there. You'll find out more about Vicki Barnett. You'll find out more about her other uh, books and including this discussion of the German church struggle and what happened there. And in just a few minutes uh, remaining in our conversation here, can I ask you to reflect on that? When we talk about Bonhoeffer, what happened in Germany, you have to discuss this crisis in the church. Can you sum that up for us and then talk a little bit about uh, your analysis of that and maybe how, whether we see indications of it in the church today, here or anywhere else, yeah. and what's, what we could possibly do about that. Yeah, um, I think this is a fascinating story. So the German church struggle within the German Protestant church uh, came out of this, the division in 1933 between a very pro-Nazi faction in the church called the German Christians, um, and the backlash against that, which eventually became the Confessing Church, which was the church that Bonhoeffer was a part of. Uh, the German Christians were nationalistic, they were very anti-Semitic, they aligned their cause with the Nazis. When the Nazis came to power, they decided you know, this was the moment to create sort of a Nazified church. Um, they distorted theology, they wanted to get rid of the Hebrew scriptures, they you know, wanted to get rid of the cross. I mean, so this is a, Even redefine Jesus. Redefine or, Jesus yeah. as a so-called Aryan figure. So this is a thoroughly heretical <laughs> group. Um, but a lot of people went along with it. And there was, there was a tr traction there. And of course, they certainly initially had the political part support of the Nazis, who saw this as their opening to take control Could of the church. Could we say that it was a form of populism, the kind of religious yes, populism was, to was, go along with the cultural and political? Yeah, de definitely. I think it was definitely an ethno-nationalist populist movement within the church that really felt that you know they had free reign to, re reign to sort of revise um, Christian teachings to conform to this new movement. Uh, the Confessing Church, as the name would suggest, said the only church can be based upon the confessions to Christ, uh, the scriptures, 
um, they kind of went back to the theological foundations to push back against sort of this ideological move. Now Bonhoeffer is involved in the Confessing Church from the beginning. He's against the Nazi, the, the German Christians from the beginning. Um, and really sees clearly the heretical... And when we say German Christians, we don't mean just... Uh, right, the, I'm referring the, to this movement. I'm, yeah, yeah. yeah. So this, this is not German Christians in general. This right. is this particular movement within Protestantism that, that he opposes. Um, and so he really kind of, you know, this, this actually, I would say, comes out of his own work in the 1920s. You know, his basic question about what the church is called to be in the modern world. And you know the, his question. You know, who, exactly. His you know, first who, dissertation. Right. Who is Jesus Christ for us today? Was sort of his central question. So that you know his focus on defining the church in the world as it stands, kind of you know is instrumental at this particular moment in 1933, in helping the church to define itself apart from the the ideology of the times. I mean, National Socialism had a huge following throughout the 1930s. Most Germans were behind it. Uh, so to be a contrarian movement within the church against the Nazification of the church, but also kind of against this larger ideology um, took a Something lot of- Something very unpopular Exactly, and it took a lot of clarity. I mean, even there, were, there was a large group of people within the German Protestant church who were neither nor. They weren't German Christians, they weren't pro-Nazis necessarily, but they weren't confessing Christians, and they just wanted the church to stay out of trouble. <laughs> and, you know, Go bon along to get along. Right, exactly, and so Bonhoeffer is among the people who say, no, the church needs to speak out when something is this wrong. Um, and so you can kind of see his path going on from there. There's a certain logic to where he ends up. Um, I was lucky in the 1980s to be living in Germany and to be able to collect oral histories of people who'd been in the Confessing Church. And I was extremely fortunate to do so at a time when I was still able to interview Martin Niemöller, for example, and Helmut, Helmut Goldwitzer. And so I interviewed a lot of these people who had been in the Confessing Church, and those oral histories are what came together my first book, For the Soul of the People, which is kind of a, an oral history of the Confessing Church. Well, and in fact, I'm uh, going to put it on your reading list, folks, for the soul of the people. I have it right above my head on my bedstand. I mean, it's over my head. Uh, and and it's, it's really good to keep nearby because, Vicki, I'm going to ask you, uh, you know, first of all, what are the lessons from all this for the church today, anywhere, but particularly here in the United States? And are there any particularly relevant points, you know, that Bonhoeffer and the leaders in the Confessing Church made back then that we might learn from now? Yeah, I think in any point, and this was something that I really thought about as I was doing these oral histories way back in the 80s, um, and, and I, I always tell people that I got to know the German church from its best people because the privilege of interviewing these figures and getting a sense of what real faith can look like in a time of crisis. And if you think of crises throughout our own history, whether it's a civil rights movement, whether, I mean, you know, there are moments in any country's history where you have um, divisions, you've got issues of social justice, you have things that really arouse the conscience of people and understanding the significance of the churches or the voice of any faith body, I would say, in such times. Um, you know, Bonhoeffer's insight was that the church could speak with a voice that nobody else had. Um, and that therefore it was their duty to do so. 
know, they didn't have the option of sort of ducking yes. when evil was being done, when people were being persecuted, when there was injustice being propagated. And that insight, I think, is a good one to keep in mind today when we see injustice, when we see persecution, uh, when we see something that arouses our own conscience. You know, you can speak as from your conscience no matter who you are, whether you're a Christian or not. Um, but I think, you know, somebody coming from a different faith perspective, any faith perspective, we have a language that, that you know, is important to bring to bear at those moments. And I think it's an important voice to bring in to the public sphere. You think it's time for the church to speak today? I think it's always time for the church to speak. I mean, I think we always have something that we can say, you yes. know, and, and that that's, it's important to keep that alive and to have that be part of our awareness of yeah. Yeah. who we are. You know, as a clergyman myself and having worked on Capitol Hill for 24 years, I know that when the voices of the church speak, whether it's pastors or theologians or uh, ethicists, or, you know, whoever, scholars too. When we speak, there is, there is a disposition f uh, for listening that doesn't exist with others. It, 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 we, are, we are considered a different kind of voice, so I hope I hope, uh, you know, as you're listening, take yourself back, you know, it doesn't have to be the extreme of Nazism and the catastrophe of a world war to require uh, a time to speak. I would think it's better to speak earlier than later. Yeah, Bonhoeffer's insight back in 33, 34, where he said, speak out for those who cannot speak. So it's, yes. it's precisely those who are being victimized, persecuted, the people on the margins of society. Um, and one of the church's problems historically has been those aren't necessarily the people we align ourselves with, but, but that's the call. And I wouldn't, I mean, as I very intentionally extend that to to all faith groups. I mean, I think what one sees in a diverse society are, you know, Jewish leaders, Muslim leaders, Sikhs, I mean, all different faith communities have this concern and there's a way in which um, that, that comes from a special place no matter what your, your faith tradition. Well, I'm gonna say let's uh, listen seriously uh, to uh, Vicki's analysis of all this. Thank you for writing. Thank you. After 10 years, I'm going back to it. I gave it a real cursory read. Now I'm gonna give it a real serious read. I hope my listeners will do that too. And uh, then you'll uh, move on to For the Soul of the People both of which you can get from smile.amazon.com. And may I crassly remind you that if you choose the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, you will help us with the purchase uh, of those volumes and any others. Uh, so, uh, Vicki, thank, thank you. Thank you for thank giving you so us some nice insight into this extraordinary man and his times and how they apply to our own. Thank and you. wish you well in all of your future work. I know you're not done. Yeah, thanks. All the best to you too. Thank you.